Chapter Sixteen of the Hidden Places. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Hidden Places by Bertrand W. Sinclair. Chapter Sixteen. Hollister had gone down to Lawans with a haunch of venison. This neighborly custom of sharing meat when it is to be had for the killing prevails in the northern woods. Officially there were game seasons to be observed, but the close season for deer sat lightly on men in a region three days' journey from a butcher shop. They shot deer when they needed meat. The law of necessity overrode the legal pronouncement in this matter of food, as it often did in other ways. While Hollister, having duly pleased Lawan's China boy by this quarter of venison, sat talking to Lawan, Charlie Mills came in to return a book. "'Did you get anything out of that?' Lawan asked. "'I got a bad taste in my mouth,' Mills replied. "'It reads like things that happen. It's too blamed true to be pleasant. A man shouldn't be like that. He shouldn't think too much, especially about other people. He ought to be like a bull, go around snorting and pawing up the earth till he gets his belly full, and then lie down and chew his cud. Lawan smiled. "'You've hit on something, Mills,' he said. "'The man who thinks the least and acts the most is the happy man, the contented man.' because he's nearly always pleased with himself. If he fails at anything, he can usually excuse himself on the grounds of somebody else's damn foolishness. If he succeeds, he complacently assumes that he did it out of his own greatness. Action, that's the thing. The contemplative, analytical mind is the mind that suffers. Man was a happy animal until he began to indulge in abstract thinking. And now that the burden of thought is laid on him, he frequently uses it to his own disadvantage. "'I'll say he does,' Mills agreed. "'But what can he do? I've watched things happen. I've read what some pretty good thinkers say. It don't seem to me a man's got much choice.' He thinks, or he don't think, according to the way he's made. When you figure how a man comes to be what he is, why, he's nothing but the product of forces that have been working on all the generations of his kind. It don't leave a man much choice about how he thinks or feels. If he could just grin and say, it doesn't matter, he'd be all right. But he can't, unless he's made that way. And since he isn't responsible for the way he's made, what the hell can he do? You're on the high road to wisdom when you can look an abstraction like that in the face, Lawan laughed. What you say is true, but there's one item you overlook. A man is born with, say, certain predispositions. Once he recognizes and classifies them, he can begin to exercise his will his individual determination. If our existence was ordered in advance by destiny, dictated by some all-conscious, omnipotent intelligence, 
we might as well sit down and fold our hands. But we still have a chance. Free will is an exploded theory, insofar as it purposes to explain human action in a general sense. Men are biologically different. In some, weakness is inherent, in others, determination. The weak man succumbs when he is beset. The strong man struggles desperately. The man who consciously grasps and understands his own weaknesses can combat an evil which will destroy a man of lesser perception, lesser will, because the intelligent man will avoid what he can't master. He won't butt his head against a stone wall either intellectually, emotionally, or physically. If the thing is beyond him, and he knows it is beyond him, he will not waste himself in vain effort. He will adapt himself to what he can't change. The man who can't do that must suffer. He may even perish. And to cling to life is the prime law. That's why it is a fundamental instinct that makes a man want to run when he can no longer fight. Hollister said nothing. He was always a good listener. He preferred to hear what other men said, to weigh their words, rather than pour out his own ideas. Lawan sometimes liked to talk at great length, to assume the oracular vein, to analyze actions and situations, to put his finger on a particular motive and trace its origin, its most remote causation. Mills seldom talked. It was strange to hear him speak as he did now to Luan. Mills walked back through the flat with Hollister. They trudged silently through the soft, new snow, the fresh fall which had enabled Hollister to track and kill the big deer early that morning. The sun was setting. Its last beam struck flashing on the white hills. The back of the winter was broken, the March storms nearly at an end. In a little while now, Hollister thought, the buds would be bursting. There would be a new feel in the air, new fragrant smells arising in the forest, spring freshets in the rivers, the wild duck flying north. Time was on the wing, in ceaseless flight. Mills broke into his reflections. Come up in the morning, will you, and check in what cedar I have piled. I'm going to pull out. All right, Hollister looked his surprise at the abrupt decision. I'm sorry you're going. Mills walked a few paces. Maybe it won't do me any good, he said. I wonder if Lawan is right. It just struck me that he is. Anyway, I'm going to try his recipe. Maybe I can kid myself into thinking everything's Jake, that the world's a fine sort of place and everything is always lovely. If I could just myself think that, maybe a change of scenery will do the trick. Lawan's clever, isn't he? Nothing would fool him very long. I don't know, Hollister said. Lawan's a man with a pretty keen mind and a lively imagination. He's more interested in why people do things than in what they do. But I dare say he might fool himself as well as the rest of us, 
for all we know, now and then. "'I guess it's the way a man's made,' Mills reflected. "'But it's rather a new idea that a man can sort of make himself over if he puts his mind to it. Still, it sounds reasonable. I'm going to give it a try. I've got to.' But he did not say why he must. Nor did Hollister ask him. He thought he knew and he wondered at the strange tenacity of this emotion which Mills could not shake off. A deep-rooted passion for some particular woman, an emotion which could not be crushed, was no mystery to Hollister. He only wondered that it should be so vital a force in the life of a man. Mills came down from the hill camp to settle his account with Hollister in the morning. He carried his blankets and his clothes in a bulky pack on his sturdy shoulders. When he had his money, he rose to go, to catch the coastwise steamer which touched the inlet's head that afternoon. Hollister helped him sling the pack, opened the door for him, and they met Myra Bland setting foot on the porch step. They looked at each other, those two. Hollister knew that for a second neither was conscious of him. Their eyes met in a lingering fixity, each with a question that did not find utterance. "'I'm going out,' Mills said at last. A curious huskiness seemed to thicken his tongue. "'This time for good, I hope. So long.' "'Good-bye, Charlie,' Myra said. She put out her hand. But either Mills did not see it, or he shrank from contact, for he passed her and strode away, bent a little forward under his pack. Myra turned to watch him. When she faced about again, there was a mistiness in her eyes, a curious, pathetic expression of pity on her face. She went on into the house with scarcely a glance at Hollister. In another week spring had ousted winter from its seasonal supremacy. The snow on the lower levels vanished under a burst of warm rain. The rain ceased and the clouds parted to let through a sun fast growing to full strength. Buds swelled and burst on willow and alder. The soil, warmed by the sun, sent up the first shoots of fern and grasses a myriad fragile green tufts that would presently burst into flowers. The toba rose day by day, pouring down a swollen flood of snow water to the sea. And life went on as it always did. Hollister's crew, working on a bonus for work performed, kept the bolts of cedar gliding down the chute. The mill on the river below swallowed up the blocks and spewed them out in bound bundles of roof covering. Lawan kept close to his cabin, deep in the throes of creation, manifesting strange vagaries of moroseness or exhilaration, which in his normal state he cynically ascribed to the artistic temperament. Bland haunted the creeks where the trout lurked, tramped the woods gun in hand, a dog at his heels, oblivious to everything but his own primitive, purposeless pleasures. "'I shouldn't care to settle here for good,' 
he once said to Hollister. But really, you know, it's not half bad. If money wasn't so dashed scarce. It's positively cruel for an estate to be so tied up that a man can't get enough to live decently on. Bland irritated Hollister sometimes, but often amused him by his calm assurance that everything was always well in the world of J. Carrigan Bland. Hollister could imagine him in Norfolk, and gaiters striding down an English lane, concerned only with his stable, his kennels, the land whose rentals made up his income. There were no problems on Bland's horizon. He would sit on Hollister's porch with a pipe sagging one corner of his mouth and gaze placidly at the river, the hills, the far stretch of the forest, and Hollister knew that to Bland it was so much water, so much up-piled rock and earth, so much growing wood. He would say to Myra, "'My dear, it's time we were going home,' or, "'I think I shall have a go at that big pool in Graveyard Creek tomorrow,' or, "'I say, Hollister, if this warm weather keeps on, the bears will be coming out soon, eh?' and between whiles he would sit silently puffing at his pipe, a big, heavy, handsome man, wearing soiled overalls and a shabby coat with a curious dignity. He spoke of family and breeding as if these were sacred possessions which conferred upon those who had them complete immunity from the sort of effort that common men must make. He really believes that, Myra said to Hollister once. No Bland ever had to work. They have always had property. They have always been superior people. Jim's an anachronism, really. He belongs in the Middle Ages when the barons did the fighting and the commoners did the work. Generations of riding in the bandwagon has made it almost impossible for a man like that to plan intelligently and work hard merely for the satisfaction of his needs. "'I wonder what he'd do if there was no inheritance to fall back on?' Hollister asked. "'I don't know, and I really don't care much,' Myra said indifferently. "'I shouldn't be concerned, probably, if that were the case.' Hollister frowned. Why do you go on living with him, if that's the way you feel? You seem to forget, she replied, that there are very material reasons. And you must remember that I don't dislike Jim. I have got so that I regard him as a big, good-natured child of whom one expects very little. How in heaven's name did a man like that catch your fancy in the first place? Hollister asked. He had never ceased to wonder about that. Myra looked at him with a queer lowering of her eyes. "'What's the use of telling you?' she exclaimed petulantly. "'You ought to understand without telling. "'What was it drove you into Doris Cleveland's arms a month after you met her? "'You couldn't know her, nor she you. "'You were lonely and moody.' and something about her appealed to you. You took a chance, 
and drew a prize in the lottery. Well, I took a chance also, and drew a blank. I'm a woman, and he's a man, a very good sort of a man for any woman who wants nothing more of a man than that he shall be a handsome, agreeable, well-mannered animal. That's about what Jim is. I may also be good-looking, agreeable, well-mannered, a fairly desirable woman to all outward appearances, but I'm something besides, which Jim doesn't suspect and couldn't understand if he did. But I didn't learn that soon enough. "'When did you learn it?' Hollister asked. He felt that he should not broach these intimately personal matters with Myra, but there was a fascination in listening to her reveal complexes of character which he had never suspected, which he should have known. "'I've been learning for some time, but I think Charlie Mills gave me the most striking lesson,' Myra answered thoughtfully. "'You can imagine I was blue and dissatisfied when we came here, to bury ourselves alive because we could live cheaply, and he could hunt and fish to his heart's content while he waited to step into a dead man's shoes. A wife's place, you see, is in the home, and home is wherever and whatever her lord and master chooses to make it. I was quite conscious by that time that I didn't love Jim Bland. But he was a gentleman. He didn't offend me. I was simply indifferent, satiated, if you like. I used to sit wondering how I could have ever imagined myself going on year after year, contented and happy, with a man like Jim. Yet I had been quite sure of that, just as once I had been quite sure you were the only man who could ever be much of a figure on my horizon. Do you think I'm facile and shallow? I'm not, really. I'm not just naturally a sensation-seeker. I hate promiscuity. He convinced me of that. She made a swift gesture towards Mills's vanishing figure. I ran across him first in London. He was convalescing from a leg wound. That was shortly after I was married, and I was helping entertain these stray dogs from the front. It was quite the fashion. People took them out motoring and so on. I remembered Mills out of all the others because he was different from the average Tommy, quiet without being self-conscious. I remembered thinking often what a pity nice boys like that must be killed and crippled by the thousand. When we came here, Charlie was working down at the settlement. Somehow I was awfully glad to see him. Any friendly face would have been welcome those first months before I grew used to these terrible silences, this complete isolation which I had never before known. Well, the upshot was that he fell in love with me, and for a while, for a little while, I thought I was experiencing a real affection at last myself, a new love rising fine and true out of the ashes of old ones. And it frightened me. It made me stop and think. When he would stare at me with those sad eyes, I wanted to comfort him. 
I wanted to go away with him to some distant place where no one knew me and begin life all over again. And I knew it wouldn't do. It would only be the same thing over again, because I'm made the way I am. I was beginning to see that it would take a good deal of a man to hold my fitful fancy very long. Charlie's a nice boy. He's clean and sensitive, and I'm sure he'd be kind and good to any woman. Still, I knew it wouldn't do. Curious thing. All the while that my mind was telling me how my whole existence had unfitted me to be a wife to such a man, for Charlie Mills is as full of romantic illusions as a seventeen-year-old girl, at the same time some queer streak in me made me long to wipe the slate clean and start all over again. But I could never convince myself that it was anything more than sex in me responding to the passion that so deeply moved him. That suspicion became certainty at last. That is why I say Charlie Mills taught me something about myself. I think it was a dear lesson for him, Hollister said, remembering the man's moods and melancholy, the bitterness of frustration which must have torn Mills. You hurt him. I know it, and I'm sorry, but I couldn't help it she said patiently. There was a time, just about a year ago, when I very nearly went away with him. I think he felt that I was yielding, but I was trying to be honest with myself and with him. With all my vagaries, my uncertain emotions, I didn't want just the excitement of an affair, an amorous adventure. Neither did he. He wanted me, body and soul, and I recoiled from that finally, because I was afraid, afraid of what our life would become when he learned that truth which I had already grasped, that life can't be lived on the peaks of great emotion, and that there was nothing much else for him and me to go on. She stopped and looked at Hollister. "'I wonder if you think I'm a little mad,' she asked. "'No, I was just wondering what it is about you that makes men want you,' he returned. "'You should know,' she answered bluntly. "'I never knew. I was like Mills, a victim of my emotions. But one outgrows any feeling if it is clubbed hard enough. I dare say all these things are natural enough, even if they bring misery in their wake.' I dare say, she said, there is nothing unnatural in a man loving me any more than it was unnatural for you to love Doris, or for Doris to have a son. Still, you are inclined to blame me for what I've done. You seem to forget that the object of each individual's existence, man or woman, is not to bestow happiness on someone else, but to seek it for themselves. "'That sounds like Lawan,' Hollister observed. "'It's true, no matter who it sounds like,' she retorted. "'If you really believe that, you are certainly a fool to go on living with a man like Jim Bland,' Hollister declared. 
it did not occur to him that he was displaying irritation. "'I've told you why, and I do not see any reason for changing my idea,' she said coolly. "'When it no longer suits me to be a chattel, I shall cease to be one. Meantime, Pax, Pax. "'Where is Doris and the adorable infant?' Myra changed the subject abruptly. I don't hear or see one or the other. They were all out in the kitchen a minute ago, bathing the kid, he told her, and Myra went on in. Hollister's work lay almost altogether in the flat now. The cut cedar accumulating under the busy hands of six men came pouring down the chute in a daily stream. To salvage the sticks that spilled, to arrange the booms for rafting downstream, kept Hollister on the move. At noon that day, Myra and Doris brought the baby and lunch in a basket and spread it on the ground on the sunny side of an alder near the chute mouth, just beyond the zone of danger from flying bolts. The day was warm enough for comfortable lounging. The boy, now grown to be a round-faced, clear-skinned mite with blue eyes like his father, lay on an outspread quilt, waving his chubby arms, staring at the mystery of the shadows cast upon him by leaf and branch above. Hollister finished his meal in silence, that reflective silence which always overtook him when he found himself one corner of this strange triangle. He could talk to Myra alone. He was never at a loss for words with his wife. Together they struck him dumb. And this day Doris seemed likewise dumb. There was a growing strangeness about her which had been puzzling Hollister for days. At night she would snuggle down beside him, quietly contented, or she would have some story to tell or some unexpectedness of thought which still surprised him by its clear-cut and vigorous imagery. But by day she grew distrait, as if she retreated into communion with herself, and her look was that of one striving to see something afar, a straining for vision. Hollister had marked this. It had troubled him, but he said nothing. There were times when Doris liked to take refuge in her own thought world. He was aware of that, and understood it and let her be in such moods. Now she sat with both hands clasped over one knee. Her face turned toward Myra for a time. Then her eyes sought her husband's face with a look which gave Hollister the uneasy, sickening conviction that she saw him quite clearly that she was looking and appraising. Then she looked away toward the river, and as her gaze seemed to focus upon something there, an expression of strain, of effort, gathered on her face. It lasted until Hollister, watching her closely, felt his mouth grow dry. It hurt him as if some pain, some terrible effort of hers was being communicated to him. Yet he did not understand, and he could not reach her intimately with Myra sitting by. 
Doris spoke at last. "'What is that, Bob?' she asked. She pointed with her finger. "'A big cedar stump,' he replied. It stood about thirty feet away. "'Is it dark on one side and light on the other?' "'It's blackened by fire, and the raw wood shows on one side where a piece is split off.' He felt his voice cracked and harsh. "'Ah!' she breathed. Her eyes turned to the baby sprawling on his quilt. Myra rose to her feet. She picked up the baby, moved swiftly and noiselessly three steps aside, stood holding the boy in her arms. "'You have picked up baby. You have on a dress with light and dark stripes. I can see. I can see.' Her voice rose exultantly on the last word. Hollister looked at Myra. She held the boy pressed close to her breast. Her lips were parted, her pansy-purple eyes were wide and full of alarm as she looked at Hollister. He felt his scarred face grow white. And when Doris turned toward him to bend forward and look at him with that strange peering gaze, he covered his face with his hands. End of chapter 16 Recording by Roger Moline